for November 13th, 2017. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 489. 10 out of 10 would burn again. This is the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers, why, we're like your smart, funny friends from the internet. And sometimes we just like to get together and talk, to hang out together and talk. But sometimes the thing we're talking about is not the thing we're talking about. I'm your host, Matt Rather, and with me is Pete Fenzel. Hey, Pete, how are you doing? Hey, I'm good, Matt. How are you doing? I'm, I am excellent. Uh, you know, Pete, I, I think that this is one of our storied two-handers. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I say that as if you didn't know, as though it were a category that we could bestow <laughs> on it rather than it just being a, a, you know, a, a feature of what we're doing, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> the, uh, you know, I, I wonder what kinds of stories people tell about our two-handers. <laughs> Sometimes. I wonder in, in the days to come, you know, in the, when the wreck of humanity lives on Mars or something like that, or in Lake Elysium and looks down on, on the, the Matt Damons of the world down on Earth in their robo-suits and, uh, you know, tells stories about what happened. I wonder what kind of stories they'll, they'll tell about. Uh, you know what they'll say? They'll say, oh, giants walked the Earth in those days. Giants of, of overthinking. Yes. Yeah, Don't you exactly. think? Oh, yeah. I'm sure it'll be only good stories. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, uh, so listen, we're going to do something that we don't do often anymore. Uh, it was a feature of this podcast for a while that we would begin every episode with a question of the week. Um, there was a lot of there, and there were a lot of reasons we did this. It was a way to introduce everybody, to say everybody's names, and let them let you hear their voice, so that you could hear who was on the podcast. It also, I mean, Pete, do you think it had a function as kind of a group game at the beginning? Can you like, can you explain what that is at the beginning? Oh, in, yeah, in sure. a nutshell. A group game is a theatrical convention for improvised comedic shows or dramatic shows uh, where you I, – I would almost describe it as more of an opening where the idea is you are connecting the people who are trying to create something together in an idea – in a framework where they get to bounce off each other, respond to each other spontaneously and, and just generate content, and then that creates inspiration for what you talk about later. But with the group game, you're also talking about reaching a childlike state of play where you don't feel constrained by rules too much. Like, there's rules that empower you and, and rules that constrain you, and the question of the week was sort of about having a rule that gives you something to play with and, and confound uh, so that we all do it together, we all check in with each other, we all see where we're at, and then that helps to inform and move forward the rest of our discussion. So it connects us, it connects us to to each other, it connects us to uh, the people who are watching. In the case of a theatrical show, or listening, in our case, it also uh, it it uh, creates a certain headspace among the the cadre of performers. It also generates material, right? Like, and that's uh, you know that's an important thing. And and we used to do this at the beginning of every at the beginning of every show uh, until we sort of realized that the question of the week was getting into like thirty thirty five minute territory <laughs> of the hour podcast, and that actually like we never you know really did get around to uh, talking about Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. We just were like doing a roundtable on our favorite ice cream flavors or something like that, which, you know, is a, a tough question and one that that bears a lot of scrutiny, right? 
Mm-hmm. So, uh, so we have moved the question of the week into the members area. And for those uh, heroes who support overthinking it with a, a monthly fee, um, they get a little extra something. And in addition to the knowledge that they're supporting this show that they love very much, they get... Uh, Various kinds of, of things. And one of those, uh, at the middle tier of membership and above is the, is the, uh, the digital library where we put extra audio products that don't make it onto the main feed. Audio products. You know, like my digital lingo there, you know, content creation. We just, we just extrude more content for you. And one of the things that we've been doing is recording a question of the week every week, but putting it in the members area, uh, for the members to enjoy. And, uh, based on some, uh, members who have gotten in touch with us and told us about how they use the membership. They uh, people really like listening to the question of the week in, in that context. But we're going to do one this week in the uh, uh, in the main show. Uh, unless you want to go to um, uh, unless you want to go join the the uh, join the website at overthinkingit.com slash join. If you want to become a member, you'll get a question of the week every week. But this is one for free because our like like uh, like divine love. Uh, our love for our audience surpasseth uh, all things. Uh, Pete, th- I mean, <laughs> that's heretical right there, Matt. That is a heretical thing to say. That's blasphemous. That's blasphemous, is what that is. Well, I guess there's a difference. But. I, I suppose we were talking, we were trying to, uh, I don't know. It's, I, th- I thought we all try to, to love our neighbor uh, as ourselves. Anyway, the, 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 question, the question of the week after that, probably too lengthy preamble, but uh, if you're not used to probably too lengthy preambles by now, you should probably find a different podcast to listen to. Um, the, uh, the question of the week, Pete, is what, what is your favorite theological heresy? What is your, f- <laughs> uh, <laughs> what, what is so your my, favorite heresy? <laughs> my favorite heresy, and I'm going to dig a little bit deep for this, and I'm also going to take it into the world of fiction, both because I like this one a lot and also because it lowers the stakes. After all, talking a little bit askance of a topic rather than directly about the topic can sometimes allow you to speak more honestly about what's going on. So in the show Babylon 5, <laughs> the, uh, are you familiar with Babylon 5, Matt? I, I'm familiar. I'm not, uh, not the kind of expert that you are. Yeah. It's, well, it's, I mean, it's a seminal work of seri- early serialized television. Well, not that there wasn't serialized television before, but the buildup in particular to serialized prestige sci-fi, Babylon 5 is a way station along the path. <laughs> and uh, Babylon 5, there's a character named Jakar in Babylon 5 who looks kind of like a snake. He's like a snake person. Uh, and he's from the Narn, who are a group of people from a, a planet that kind of look like snake people. And the Narn are in a constant state of near civil war near war or outright war with another race called the centauri who look like whacked out napoleon aliens they have like sort of sideways frills on top of their head the centauri and and londo the main centauri guy one of the main known images about babylon 5 because he has this really weird sideways comb haircut and the Narn are in – yeah, they're in a constant state of war with the Centauri. The Narn have most recently been on the losing side of this war. They have been conquered. They've had various sorts of atrocities committed against them. They are oppressed. The Narn are the oppressed people, and the Centauri are the imperial people. And Jakar is a very angry man who is a diplomat on a space station, and he's trying to negotiate with the Centauri and with other sorts of alien races about the kind of general peace and whether there's going to be a war, another war, uh, humans are involved, other aliens are involved. 
And about about halfway through the story arc of the whole of the whole thing, uh, Jakar goes through a transformation, which puts him very much uh, sideways to his people. Right, it's very not in the same place where the Narn are because the Narn are very proud, and they and you meet them and you think of them as generally warriors and as sort of aggressive and and very martial, but not even more than martial violent because they look like snakes. But it turns out that the Narn are you know kind of beaten down, and it's the Centauri who are more violent. They're the ones who are killing many more of the civilians and such. So it's a classic kind of like issue of perception. But about halfway through this. Jakar goes through something of a transformation uh, through being, he's being captured, he's tortured, uh, he, and, and there's a revelation that takes place during this, the course of this time that the Centauri are representatives in a large proxy war between two huge ancient alien races that are somewhat godlike with respect to each other and who use this, the, even the major observable alien races like humans, like Centauri, like Narn, in their proxy wars against each other. And Jakar had determines that if the Narn continue to fight an endless war of retribution and revenge against the Centauri, they will end up on such the bad end of this proxy war that they will be utterly annihilated because they just don't have the resources to fight against like the bigger enemy. And also because just violence in general begets violence. And he becomes a religious figure and he, he has a sacred book that he reads and, and he becomes something of a prophet. And, and his belief is in this sort of radical Nonviolent resistance to this Centauri. Now, this at times breaks down or, or doesn't, and there are fights and, and stuff, but Jakar becomes a radical pacifist. And this is looked down upon uh, by a lot of his people. And there's something of a conflict where people look down on him because he doesn't want to resist, but then people also want to make him like an, a, a, a god figure or an empire emperor figure because he's a uniting figure and he has a certain amount of power. And he refuses these things because that's not what the whole point of it is, right? It's about him reaching this kind of spiritual transformation, deciding to kind of give up on violence. And it's performed by the wonderful Andreas Katsulas, uh, who I don't think is, is with us anymore. I think he died back in 2006. But he plays Jakar with such a combination of ferocity and vulnerability and sensitivity. And Jakar's whole spiritual journey through the rejection of the long-held beliefs of his people into this sort of religious resistance. Uh, it, it is. It's against the rules. It's against the idea of who everybody is. It's against the unity of his people to, to say these sorts of things. And it does sort of come around to the end of it, but there is this period that's very fraught where he has to kind of stand alone in the darkness. And and for that, I would say that Jakar is among my favorite heretics. Uh, so uh, <laughs> uh, even though, of course, he's the kind of heretic who gets vindicated by history rather than punished, which, uh, again, it's sort of like um, there are there was it. There are no – it's, it's – uh, only other people are ever rebels, right? Like your side are always freedom fighters, that kind of thing. So in that respect, Jakar is not a heretic. He's he's a he's a prophet. But I think in the context, it makes sense as an answer to the question. Yeah, I mean that that what what exactly is the heresy? Like it's I, I understand that he goes against the the sort of feelings of his people, the or the kind of the dominant mode of his people. Is that is that it? Is it sort of like stepping out and speaking out against the dominant paradigm, or do you feel like there is a category error or a or a or not category error? Sorry, that means something different. A category of thing, a category of error that he commits or is alleged to commit. Uh, I think that what he does is he invokes religious authority to dispute the widely held political and ideological uh, hegemonic position of his people. So there's this thing called the Book of Jaquan, uh, which is uh, is this sacred book, and 
uh, Jakar becomes something of a of a um, of, of an not an acolyte, but but a, a really a, a really aggressive reader of the Book of Jaquan, almost almost to the degree that Martin Luther it reads the Bible with this sort of radical eye towards transforming the way that people relate to it. it, it is that he he uses his relationship with the Book of Jaquan and the in, in, doc, in like the instruction of his various acolytes to oppose the political ideological unity of his people. And so it's it's this sort of um, uh, and there is there's also this sort of idea of a different idea of history that he forwards a different sort of historical narrative. He builds out an entirely different narrative of how his people emerged from uh, ancient wars of the past, which is in the book of Jaquan, but has not been widely understood by his people. And so I guess, yeah, so I would say it in two sides. On one hand, he's a heretic because uh, just in terms of core values that emerge from how to interpret Holy Scripture, he comes up with a totally different answer than what everybody else comes up with, and he believes it to be systematic and demonstrable and clear. And also with it, he has an alternative history that he he says, no, actually, you think that this is what happened? Looking at the same sources, I can say that this is what happened. This is the belief that I think uh, it happened. And, it, and it's one that's attributed to a sort of dawn of days period, wherein nothing is really confirmable, so it carries is on more the weight of a religious heresy and less the weight of like a, a you know historical uh, kind of uh, like a controversial academic paper about history or historical revisionism or something like that. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, I think I, anyway. I'm 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 going a little more into the actual into the history of theology a little bit for my favorite um, for my favorite heresy. My my favorite heresy is the uh, the heresy of monophysitism. Ooh, I want to talk about this more later. Are it's you, a great heresy. Yeah, in you, terms of real life, this heresy is awesome. Well, this, you know, this, I mean, I, I don't know what you're talking about, Pete. <laughs> this has nothing to do with real life at all and is simply an inquiry into the history of early Christianity. Um, right. So in the, as, as the sort of, you know, in you had this uh, group of ragtag Godspell hippies um, in like the the early Jesus movement, and as these things were, as these things were, these churches, you know, you, you got a uh, Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, riding around, galloping around, um, Monty Python style, you know, clapping two coconuts behind him, and like actually, there's probably probably not horses; they're probably, he's probably riding other other uh, pack animals. But the the yeah. um, horses were not big enough. At at the time, I think. Well, right. no, they probably were, <laughs> but his weren't. He had probably had donkeys. Yeah, they had donkeys, <laughs> right? Exactly. Um, you know, and and uh, you know, early Christianity was all aromatic foot baths and uh, and uh, you know, long long mash notes that that are now collected in the the New Testament. Uh, well, I guess anti anti mash notes, given his uh, sort of horror, his kind of like innate revulsion against. Uh, uh, any kind of sexual thing. Um, so uh, anyway, so as this gets co-opted into various kinds of institutions uh, who sort of become Christian and end up like end up kind of affecting the course of Christianity and as the kind of the natural evolution of it um kind of goes from a, a persecuted minority to uh, a uh, self-persecuting minority in the form of ascetic monasticism to various kinds of institutional organization. And I realize there's, you know, I'm probably leaving uh, all kinds of details out and feel free to well actually me in, in the comments because uh, 
this is a, a fascinating period of history and should be studied in all of its uh, complication and and um, contradiction. Uh, you know, one of the things that they were trying to, one of the things that early Christians were trying to reconcile was the theology, uh, was, uh, uh, their kind of Christological, um, holdings, right? The, the theology of what kind of person, uh, this Jesus fella was, um, or what kind of non-person this Jesus fellow was right. Because there, you know, there, there was a, uh, there was a Jesus was all divine position. There was a Jesus was all human position became, you know, he, he was incarnate. He, he was, um, incarnate is Latin for meatified. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he was meatified and that was, uh, his only nature. And the, uh, you know, and then there were some kind of, I'm not sure if we can call them moderate positions, but, uh, but, um, there was some kind of like increasingly, increasingly, uh, hard to, hard to rationalize positions. And one of those won, uh, in the Council of Chalcedon in 451, uh, of the Common Era, the, um, the sort of the finding or the kind of the, the decree of that council was that the authentic nature, uh, that, that the institutional church, or at least that institutional church <laughs> was proclaiming that it was going to be, uh, that, that what it was like, it's, it's like, uh, it's like a prison outfit. It's, it's not black. It's not white. It's black and white stripes. Right. Yep. And that the divine and the incarnate uh, natures of Christ were uh, coexisting and intermingled, that that Christ was at once fully human and fully divine now this this went against the uh this went against the ones who said that he had the kind of the positions that there was a divine nature and a human nature but they were kind of separate from each other and he was only ever kind of one at a time depending on uh you know depending on the, i i guess what page of the yeah. gospel you're on uh yeah like like when he's in the garden and peter sees him in glory with moses in the sky that point he's being divine right when he's riding into jerusalem on a donkey washing people's feet then he's human right when, when he's getting yeah. an aromatic foot bath um yeah. the uh you know he is he's human at at those moments right um but the the uh, uh he didn't give aromatic he didn't get aromatic foot baths he gave them because well, he, he was yeah well, he gave mary magdalene gave, i get he got them too yeah, yeah washed, too. washed uh, his feet with her hair yeah right um so, yep so the, but the when whole... it comes to aromatic foot baths, the more you give, the more you get. So, uh, I think the Beatles said that. At one point. <laughs> the aromatic foot, the aromatic foot baths you take is equal to the aromatic foot baths that you make. <laughs> Something like that. Now the the, the um, so this was the the position of the Council of Chalcedon that it would that there were these intermingled dual natures, uh, and this was the sort of christological. This was the christological position. Now because uh, um, because history is written by the winners, they got to declare their opponents heretics, uh, and, and one of the heretics were the monophysitists, which is monophysitists. 
right? Or mon, uh, monophysites or something like that, right? Like the, the, uh, and, um, monophysitism is the assertion, the Christological position that, uh, that, you know, the, uh, sun, that the, you know, sun part of the, the Trinity, which, you know, Trinity is a whole other thing with other councils and problems, but the sun part of the Trinity was actually just divine, right? It's like, it's black and white, guys. It's just divine. This whole nuanced position that you're, that you're developing, not only is it incor- incorrect, but it's some crazy BS. Uh, and what are you, what are you people smoking down there at the, the Council of Chalcedon? Um, that the, uh, the sort of the fully divine, um, the fully divine position was the one that, uh, uh, you know, was the one that the monophysitists, uh, or the mono, monophysites, um, with their heresy of monophysitism, uh, proclaimed to be, to be true. And I, you know, I like it. I, I like it because it's very, it's very human, right? It's, uh, it is a sort of black and white, good or bad, light or dark, this or that kind of, uh, kind of human thinking. And you can kind of see the, attraction uh you can kind of see the attraction of it you know because like up until that point christianity had been an extraordinarily practical kind of earthbound religion and it was only the 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 dual nature people who introduced you know any sort of mumbo jumbo at all into the uh into the the theology of christianity i'm being you know, facetious, <laughs> obviously. Thank you. This, yeah. I, I appreciate the laugh so that you know I'm making a joke with my characteristic drive. I wit. mean, it depends on what you're judging it relative to, right? Because so if, you, <laughs> if good, you look at early Christianity point. when it was first spreading, it's pretty freaking grounded yeah. relative to like the worship of all of the various other sorts of gods. Uh, my favorite uh, being um, uh, Glycon, the snake puppet <laughs> that is revealed <laughs> in the Lucius, uh, the Lucius Alexander. The Oracle Monger satire. It's like this is just a puppet. He doesn't know have any musical. He doesn't have magical powers. He's a fake snake. But uh, but it's funny because relative to the other Eastern mystery religions and the traditions of kind of pre-Eastern mystery religion in the Roman Empire, Christianity is not particularly mumbo jumbo ish, and is not. It does not promise you a lot of stuff with regards to magical powers, good luck, you know, prophecy, any of that stuff. I mean, it's etern- you know, eternal life. Eternal life is, you know, a pretty, uh, a pretty big. But who, who doesn't promise? Well, they were also thinking the end of the world was coming, which wasn't a necessarily incorrect idea. (laughs) Certain interpretations of end of the world, but but the other side of it is that once you get to the point in at least the West where it's Christianity on one side and the the kingdoms on the other, the sort of authority of force, then Christianity is the magic. It's all the magic, right? It's all the beauty. It's all of the sort of supernatural, predictive you know, mystical, unknown, mysterious, because Christianity takes over all that stuff. It kind of ends up representing all of it in totem. But it's not like if people had been into Mithras at the end of the day, rather than Christianity, they would have necessarily been less into magic. Right. Yeah, it's like, it's not like people who read horoscopes are like really, really realistic and grounded relative to people who pray to saints. Like, sure. it's, you know, yeah, it's it one half dozen. Sort of part of the, part of the, the genius of early Christianity was how adaptable it yeah. was and how in its form, in its sort of 
pre how it, it could sort of uh it, it could encompass a lot of a lot of things and various kinds of devotions uh in Christianity that that survive in some of the Eastern churches and in Catholicism, right? Like our our legacies of of this, of you know uh goddess worship and things like this, which got kind of subsumed into uh, got consu- subsumed into you know I don't know Marian devotion and things like this and it's like oh you guys are monotheists now and it's like actually we kind of dig this chick nope you're monotheists now <laughs> <laughs> you're monotheists it's, it's and speaking of remnants monophysitism lives on in the Coptic Church in the Armenian Church in the Ethiopian Church right there's a it, it's it's the kind of thing where it never really entirely went away uh, and the Empress Theodora is its sort of biggest. Uh, celebrity endorsement (laughs) (laughs) um yeah anyway that's not here or there that's i I think it's a solid heretical choice there matt i I broke you at the stake without hesitation good job yeah exactly 10 out of 10 would burn again (laughs) uh so uh, pete why why are uh heresies and and theology on our mind why are they on our mind? Yeah, I mean, what, are we just going know, seamlessly into the next conversation? I or suppose we, so. Uh, unless you want to, unless you want to have like pause here to have a council. You know, <laughs> are there any are there any controversial positions on overthinking it that we need to uh, hash out together right now? Okay, okay. So we're doing the main podcast episode now, right? This is the big. This is the big show. This is not just for the members. This is for everybody. Yes, right? absolutely. All right. So here's the deal. So. There's been something of a breakdown in the pop culture, because this is a pop culture website, but this is about how the pop culture relates to the real world, and, which, and, and when I say the real world, I mean the consequences of actions that people take that relate to other human beings as they represent themselves in going about their business rather than how they represent themselves in film or video or music or what have you. And there's been a bit of a breakdown in which – Right now we're in – and we've talked about it a little bit when we talked or didn't talk about Harvey Weinstein. Now we're in the Louis C.K. situation, which is that it's finally been publicly discussed, something that's been known for a long time, which is that Louis C.K. does this super creepy stuff that is makes the ho- the workplace hostile for the women he tries to work with and kind of damages their careers, and it's kind of terrible, and or it is terrible. And finally he's being openly discussed among people in general as somebody who needs to pay consequences for the stuff that he's done with regards to his various uh, sexual aggressions and and proclivities. And the breakdown is that the method of punishment for what he has done is in this space that I feel like is kind of difficult to articulate, which is that there's a wide outcry of people who look around and think that all the people who think like them are all outcrying against him in the same way. And there's this assumption that he's going to lose all of his movie deals and his career is going to go away. Uh, but it's not really like the rule of law that's doing this. It is this this pressure, this social rule, right? It's ostracism. It's that there's a social group and the social group has agreed that we have values and and we are going to use our values to uh, ostracize this guy because of this bad thing that he's done, which I think is 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 it de- demonstrates not only 
the power of values, but also the failure of the rule of law to address problems like this. <laughs> that that uh, Louis C.K. Was, was never really going to get in legal trouble for doing this thing, even though it's against a variety of different kinds of laws, depending upon when he did it or where, civil and criminal, right? Like Because it's in a workplace. That's the big – by the way, that's the big difference in case anybody is sort of confused is the context of it being in a workplace uh, with employees of his or people who might conceivably be employees of his or people he's working with for whom he has like seniority of a sort of formal or informal sort. That's one of the big things that makes this a really interesting and bad problem. Not just that he's exposing himself to random women, but that he's exposing himself to women that are at work and trying to be at work. And But it's at stand-up clubs or it's at shows where the idea that people have about whether they're working or not is different than the sort of letter of the law about whether they're working or not. That is, if you are at a show and you are a performer, you are at work and you should be treated with the respect that someone at work should be treated. And that is in the law and that is in uh, you know the way that the institution should be protecting itself. But the point being that in a comfortable space that that feels like it's simple and easy to navigate morally and personally, things like the rule of law, the will of people in general, the sort of moral authority, all of these things would line up. We all kind of agree that murdering people is bad, and if you murder somebody, you're going to get punished and you're going to get ostracized. Like you lose your job and you go to prison. Not necessarily that going to prison would be the right punishment for what Lucy C.K. has done, but, but that's all that's, – that's the whole other question is that the rule of law has kind of failed, and, and, and it has kind of failed in dealing with these sorts of workplace abuses for a really long time. And, and what we're seeing with these uh, kind of – I mean you could describe them as – they're vigilante efforts except they're being done by a large group of people rather than kind of individual people, these you know media outlets and human beings going after this stuff. They're, they're – they're, coming up with this sort of alternative method for establishing norms of behavior. And what this makes me think of is it makes me think of late antiquity, and it makes me think of the late Roman Empire and the early Middle Ages when society was going through an analogous, not a similar, but an analogous transformation where you had new moral authorities that were maybe or maybe not were on the same page as the legal authorities, which were also maybe or maybe not on the same page as the people who actually had the power to do anything. And what I'm talking about here is you know, the church, the state, the emperor. You know, the emperor has the power to actually do things. The state has the power to say whether it's legal or illegal, and then the churches and the various sorts of religious groups have the power to say whether it's right or wrong. And that because these things are kind of coming apart in this instance because of the failure of the state and the leaders of the state in particular to establish like a coherent sort of approach to this kind of problem with the moral authority, uh, you end up in situations where people don't know how to feel or think. And, and, it, and, and what I'm saying in particular is the question of uh, can I forgive Louis C.K. is the question. Can I forgive him? Uh, and again, there's there's a lot there's several dimensions to this. On one hand, uh, from a, from a kind of legal moral like from a what sort of consequences should he face standpoint, uh, well, there's no need, there's no reason to forgive him. He hasn't faced any consequences yet. So like so like don't there's no need to sort of write off. He does he says in his own statement he doesn't forgive himself. There's no need to like obviate the consequences that he would face. There he's going to face those consequences. That's fair and fine. But people sense that that's not really all it is. That there's something about their own moral life about how they relate to people who've done bad things. 
and and in the sense of well in my own moral life i have this idea that i'm supposed to forgive people who wrong me but it's also under the assumption that somebody in the like the legal or worldly authority is going to do something to this person to punish them so it's like you forgive them but you still punish them right somebody like uh somebody messes with you hurts you you can fight back and you can forgive them in your heart but still make them suffer consequences and what this is talking about is in particularly Western civilization, uh, the, the, and it's particularly out of this period, comes this idea that you can establish some sort of what I would describe as an orthodoxy. You can describe like a moral authority that everybody seems to agree in that exists in parallel to the legal system but not overlapping entirely with the legal system depending upon the relationship with things like church and state. And then and then you can extend this and you can kind of like – all of this can kind of be metonymically applied to moral systems that aren't religions because all – because when – um, as a side note, Matt, have you ever worked for like a really, really big company? No, like never, a really big company? never in my life. The, the biggest company I've ever worked for is uh, like 100 people. Right. So when you work for a really big company, one of the things that you see is that the performance of the company is not ever really going to be that divergent from the performance of everybody. As in, when you get to be large enough, you become tied to the economy rather than to your business. And I see this as a metaphor for the moral life of religions, where if everybody in the society is ascribing to a religion, then the religion is going to be highly correlated to the moral life of everybody, more than it might be to what the specific religion like requires or wants. And in that sense, if you were to replace the religion with something else, you would have the same everybody. And this is one of the ways in which, yeah, it changes somewhat, but changing from religion to religion, changing from being religious to secular, people hold on to their values, people hold on to their behaviors, they hold on to their discourses. They, what's comfortable or uncomfortable sometimes feels a lot the same. Uh, I, I tend to downplay the idea that adding or removing religion to a situation materially changes it by itself because a lot of religion is just a different way of talking about stuff that isn't religious, in my opinion. And that's part of why this is an interesting conversation for me. So here's the conversation. In religious circles, when you have a situation where there is a conflict between everybody being on the same page about how they feel about something uh, and people who have like a fundamentally different idea about how to deal with it, there are – I want to talk about – I'll talk about the Donatists, one of my favorite heresies. And this – I'm sure – I'm promising you we're getting to the topic here. We're getting to the topic here. There is, um, there is no topic. This has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> no, this I'm talking an... very specifically about heresy, <laughs> and I'm talking about sin. I'm talking about not just whether – There you go. You said, the, you said the S word. You said the yes. S word. I'm saying that is it, it – is, I think of it as somewhat different to regard – Louis C.K. as a criminal and regard him as a harmful person to have in a workplace and to regard him as a sinner. And, and again, as I'm saying, I'm expanding the idea of sin beyond the context of religion to any sort of widely held socially uh, enforced belief that has a sense of like right or wrong and good and bad associated with it that isn't strictly invested in the law. And, 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 and the ideas that people came up with in this era for sin and, and forgiveness and good and bad I think are still relevant to the, uh, to the idea of how as a group of people we can deal personally with people who do bad things um, independently of, to an extent of the success or failure of our mechanisms to enforce behavior, if that makes sense. So, um, so for example – so for example – 
the Donatist heresy. This is a favorite heresy of mine. It's not as cool as Jakar, but it's still a favorite uh, heresy of mine. Uh, the Donatists are a heresy from North Africa where um, during the reign of the Emperor Diocletian, the persecutions of the Christians be- reached a, a, a huge height, and there were laws that were passed that if you, if a Roman authority came to you and you were a Christian, you had to hand over the scriptures in order for the Romans to burn them. And this, to hand them over, trotere, or what have you, is the Latin, is the, is the inspiration for the word traitor. A traitor was somebody who handed the scriptures over to the Romans for them to burn the scriptures. And the Donatist heresy is that all, when all of this is over, right? Romans come by, you have the scriptures, they say, give me the scriptures or I'm going to kill you. You give them the scriptures, you wait. Diocletian retires to go farm cabbages, and, and, and then there's the big civil war, and Emperor Constantine comes around, and Emperor Constantine is Christian. You're like, okay, phew, I can now be a Christian without uh, being murdered by my government. I'm going to go back to being a Christian. And what the Donatist says is that we shouldn't let the people who were traitors when times were really bad, come back and be part of the church when times are good. In fact, everything that they did was illegitimate. If you were a priest or a bishop or what have you, and you handed over the scriptures to be burned, every person you baptized is illegitimate. Every person you married is illegitimate. Every person you ordained to also be a priest is is illegitimate. And the only uh, the only true way forward is to cut out all the people who did this wrong thing and only see as real and true the people who did the right thing. And and I'm not here just to enforce the Emperor Constantine's wishes, because the Donatists appealed the Emperor Constantine like three times, and being like, hey, isn't this a great idea? You know, we think this is really important. And this was the inspiration of some of the other early ecumenical councils, like Nicaea, where they were like, no, 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 we're, we're not going to illegitimize all of the marriages of all the people who are married by the church by priests who are traitors. We're not going to do it. And, and, and I think one of the conclusions you can draw from it is uh, are the works of a particular person their property? Like their, are they associated with the person? Are they intrinsically linked to the person and what they are? Or when people are endeavored upon a common effort – uh, that do their acts in some way translate to the common effort? So in the name of the church, this person did this. They married somebody. They ordained somebody. And uh, now – and yes, this person, this particular person committed a heinous crime against our religion and against what we believe. We can punish them for that and not invalidate all the work that they did. Because, and, the, and the motivation for this is in order to ensure the sort of continuity of what's been going on. Like we don't want to break up what we've already been working on into many small pieces. We don't want to start legitimizing this person, illegitimizing that person. The irony, of course, is you do this by marking a whole bunch of people heretics and splitting them off so it doesn't quite work. But, but this idea of is there an abstraction that is separate from the moral effects and causes of an individual person's actions to which those actions can be attributed? And, um, and what I see this in the context of is an artist, right? And, and this is a way of thinking about, in my opinion, an artist and their work and what you might how you might want to think about or different options you might have about how to think about the work of an artist in the context of the artist doing a terrible thing in that does. And again, 
if you patronize their work when they're still making when they're making money from it, then you're engaging in commerce with them. And maybe part of their punishment is that you don't engage in commerce with them. You don't give them money. That's one issue, right? That's an issue that's more of a of a sort of material punishment to the individual person. But in terms of like, should this person's influence be considered to be part of the community? Should this person's work as it has influenced other people, people they worked with on projects, should we get rid of those people too? Should the people that they taught, should the people who are their acolytes, should those people also be cast out because we're casting out this one person? And really what I'm saying here is that if you think that you only have two options. <laughs> and and we can catalog the monophysitists are another one. You can uh, – yeah, I, I, we're going to get that word wrong so many times. If you think you only have two options to either entirely say yes all the time, all the way to a particular person or entirely say no to someone all the time, all the way, there are centuries of people figuring out other ways of organizing those thoughts. You do not have to say, um, okay – I either I either like this person and believe in this person and ascribe loyalty to this person and no matter what they do I'm on their side or I hate this person this person is uh horrific and terrible and I am and and I'm not going to have anything to do with them ever right and there's a lot of shades of different sorts not even shades cuz it's not a continuum it's like a bunch of different sorts of systematic ways of thinking that you can think about how to deal with a person like this uh, that, and that's why I want to bring up heresies because because the, there's the orthodoxy to a degree can't really abide this in a lot of instances not just in Christianity but in other sorts of ways of thinking and looks for kind of like ways to alleviate the tension between different sorts of moral ways of thinking about things by using material power by saying like okay the government is going to come and prevent you from saying this and prevent you from thinking this because the coexistence of these ideas disrupts the notion that our moral life and our material life are like coherent with each other. But if the moral life and the material life aren't coherent with each other, then maybe we don't need to go send the people to burn people at the stake and we can kind of consider other ideas that people might have had about like what's good, what's bad. Um, what does it mean for somebody to be a sinner in terms of how you consider the work that they've done over the course of their life? Uh, but there's other ones too. I mean, Matt, what are your reactions? I mean, I'm, I've been spinning out a lot of stuff here. Uh, we could talk about monophysitism. We could go on and talk about Arianism. We could talk about Manichaeism. <laughs> uh, all of these are relevant to Louis C.K. <laughs> is what I'm saying. All of them are relevant to ways of thinking about a somewhat of a collapse between the material, the material methods of justice are maybe not working. The moral methods of justice are, are being brought forward to take the place of the material methods of justice. And I don't know how I relate to this. I don't know how I fit in. And, and I want the material consequences to happen, but I don't really necessarily feel comfortable with the orthodoxy of the moral aspect of it. Like, I don't know if I feel this way or know this. Um, I mean, I guess you could look at Protestantism, which would say that your own conscience is the ultimate arbiter of how you feel about all these things. But this doesn't feel like a, a Protestant crisis. This feels like a, a crisis of orthodoxy to me. Um, I mean, what do you think? Uh, this is a whole lot of stuff that I'm throwing. I'm really getting serious and overthinking it right now. Well, yeah, but uh, the, I mean, well, what, what, what do I think about which aspect <laughs> of what you're saying? I mean, what do I think about Manichaeism? I like cucumbers. What do I think? <laughs> well, let's talk about Manichaeism. Let's talk about Manichaeism. I don't, I don't I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure I necessarily want to go down the rabbit hole of another of another heresy yet before before just kind of like uh, you know before just cashing out a lot of the 
a lot of the 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 avenues that that you said one is that i mean i think this kind of this coincides with a crisis of authority right Mm -hmm. because the the traditional the traditional ideas of um who gives a uh, who kind of gives you the right to make certain claims, whether those claims are uh, are sort of normative or whether they are you know uh, coercive, like I, you have to do so and so or else we're going to sort of punish or or otherwise censure you, like whether you know. Um, this this thing is a sort of hotly this is a sort of hotly contested thing and there's no there there hasn't been a lot of accommodation i think in a in a lot of discourse that i've seen recently and this this goes beyond uh recent revelations of of um you know very bad behavior from a lot of quarters um mm-hmm. From you know, well, never mind. You but, mean like a like sexual assault and harassment by powerful men of women who they work with? And I mean, or might that, work with? I mean, from that at yeah. one extreme down to yeah. various kinds of malfeasance or uh, you know, you know, discursive wrongs uh, mm-hmm. at a at a much less material. Uh, at a much less material uh, extreme, and and uh, and and I mean to like, I, I want to kind of encompass that whole range without trivializing any part of it, which is probably impossible to do. But like, uh, that's why that's I why mean, I'm digging so deep to try to find some way to talk about. Yeah, it. exactly. <laughs> yeah, me, well, me too. Like, but the the there hasn't been a whole lot of accommodation um, in a lot of the discourse that I see uh, about this you know, this whole range of issues and the kind of the social questions that, that these issues raise, um, and that these bad acts raise and that these crimes, uh, raise, like there hasn't been a whole lot of accommodation for the idea that there might be multiple ways of thinking about these things. So there, there might be kind of simultaneously, uh, several ways, um, of, of, of thinking about these things. And we all become sort of, you know, we all become, sort of puritanical right like we all become uh we all get sort of very black and white and sort of insist you know insist on uh insist on exorcism um but it but because the the authorities are not uh because the authorities are not stable because we're not sort of sure what we turn to and what the sort of proper sphere what sort of authority is competent to hear various sorts of complaints and to remediate various sorts of complaints right what ends up happening is is we end up treating each other and and i'm i don't just mean like i don't just mean people who have done bad or criminal uh acts i mean the people who sort of talk about them we end up treating each other in in discourse as we all sort of try to kind of feel our way blindly towards some you know kind of reasonable accommodation so that we can live together in in some semblance of a society we end up uh wanting to kind of exercise each other and not just from like not just from the clubhouse but from like participation in but for you know I, I don't just want to kick you out i want to take all your money i want to make it impossible for you to work i want to you know um you know make sure that there is this kind of elaborate performance of wrongness uh by you or by the people around you and and um Right, rather than you know, I don't know. I feel like there is a, uh, I don't know. There, there are different kinds of wrongs, and um, 
there there is a proper there is a proper sphere for kind of adjudicating conflicts in well, the different well, in the different uh, areas in the different on the different kind of levels of wrong, right? And I, what I would ascribe this to is the way that our that I mean, what you could call it liberal public discourse in the sense of free speech and how the marketplace of ideas that can only really function if there is a legal authority that is separate from the discursive and moral authority. I think I think this is about the separation of church and state, which d- depends. And people talk about with regards to the separation of church and state, a lot of it being about how the church needs to back off. But equally important is that the state needs to step up. The state needs to do its job. And when the state – and here I'm, I'm thinking of the state like widely, not just as the institution of a country, but all of the different sorts of mechanisms that are supposed to enforce rules and, in de- and imbue punishments. Right. Like you any, can, you any can sort issue of, a punishment – yeah, go for any, it. Any institution that has coercive power. More right. or less. Yeah. And so, like, if the institutions have coercive power and they use it, you can use coercive power with regret or with a kind of like proviso or with a spirit of forgiveness. Like, there's a lot of different ways to engage with the way that an institution of this sort is exercising coercive power. But if this institution doesn't exercise coercive power and the coercive power falls to what affects to be the church, then there is only moral unity and certitude there's only orthodoxy right there's only ostracism right right. and that's and and there and like an example of this to just kind of bring it to kind of just pull us down to earth is the kind of the discursive chaos that a lot of colleges college campuses have fallen into i I won't say moral chaos because there's no moral chaos there shouldn't be around this issue but around the issue of campus sexual assault right is directly tied to the kind of the disciplinary power the the moral coward See now, I said moral to the kind yeah. of the cow, the institutional cowardice the of the school. Of duty is exactly. What it is. Well, there it's it is. Yeah. Duty. I, I yeah. like my my the way I was going to put it is kind of institutional cowardice, right? Yeah. About actually doing your effing job, you know, as an institution that has you know a coercive a coercive power and is is to a certain extent uh, responsible for the the actions of people under your you know under your banner, right? Like this right. this is the case where like individual actions sort of accrete to the um, you know, to the kind of the the common to the common purpose, and if you if you out of some sort of like uh, out of some sort of institutional cowardice don't do that, uh, like chaos is going to ensue because there there's not just going to be orthodoxy, there's going to be competing orthodoxies, and mm-hmm. there there's going to be no means for adjudicating between them, and no means for you know arriving at some. This word accommodation seems seems to like keep keep coming up for me and and it's not something i've thought about before this conversation now but like there's no means to kind of arise at an accommodation for you know uh for the kind of the reasonable uh the reasonable exercise of of institutional authority coercive power punishing people kicking them out of schools and things like this um you know and uh and a, a sort of reasonable um, sphere for for moral authority for talking in kind of visionary or uh, aspirational terms about what is good and what is bad and what it, what we should um, allow in our community and what we shouldn't allow in in our community and like the the as you say the dereliction of duty the the state not the the state not stepping up right right. Um, 
And that that like whether the state is the actual government or whether the state is like the institution, say, that's like putting on the show where somebody backstage is exposing himself to somebody else. And that should be against the rules. And if nobody does anything in any sort of position of authority or position of kind of institutional validity to do anything about that, then you're ceding the material authority to the moral authority. Well, right. And this is this is the problem, because very often, you know, the person whipping is the person exposing himself um, is you know an institution more powerful than the mm-hmm. than the s- smaller uh institution of the comedy club which uh, which technically which has you know uh, at least on paper the the responsibility to f- provide a safe working environment for uh for people i mean very often the the real very often the real institutions are are hidden right not to get w- conspiracy theory about it but like an an uh an analysis of of this you know, interlocking set of problems that is sort of coming to light again and again in society. I think, I think it will continue to come to light again and again until we can kind of get real a little bit about what the powers are in our society. I mean, the same thing with, um, the same thing with, uh, uh, universities and the kind of the the uh, cowardice of of the and mealy mouthed uh, hand wringing BS, you know that that um, by and large educational institutions um, have uh, offered in response to in, to the I won't say an epidemic because that means it's happening more now than it was before. It certainly isn't. We just hear about it more. Uh, but the the widespread revelations or the kind of of the increased uh, talk, the increased publicity given to uh, campus campus sexual assault, right? Like, like the the real thing. Those institutions are terrified. They're terrified of the cost of lawsuits. They're terrified of you know powerful donors. They're terrified of institutional backers of various kinds. They're terrified of like corporate quote unquote partners, right? And there's no uh, there's really no backbone. There's no because they're they're sort of powerless. They can't exercise moral leadership because they're so uh they're you know they're so dependent so like in terms of who who the authorities are and who the the institutions are i mean i feel like there's a a, a um certain amount of systems and now like like gimlet eyed systems analysis that needs to go on uh before you can even kind of talk about the dynamics of the problem mm. yeah definitely Oh, so should we talk about Manichaeism now? <laughs> All right, I'm just going to I'm going to chow down on these cucumbers. <laughs> so Manichaeism is an interesting heresy and it's related to Zoroastrianism to uh to pre-Christian, various sorts of pre-Christian pagan practices, although pagan's not really a great word because it refers, it's a, it's the kind of word that you use for other people, like traitor, <laughs> right, where it's like, they were pagans because they weren't like us, they probably had a lot different from each other, um, but, uh, but it's this idea, and it was it. It doesn't just happen within the scope of Christianity, but it also happens throughout the Middle East and Central Asia, and because people were kind of cast out and exiled and had a bit of a uh, diaspora, right? But this is the notion that. There is light in the world and there is darkness in the world, and these two things are in battle with each other. It is the sort of heart heart of Manichaeism. And this is rejected by Christianity because they want to believe that the world is good, right? And they want to believe that God is good, and they want to believe that people can be forgiven. And in general, in Manichaeism, this is not just the idea of, of good and bad, but it's the idea that the spirit is light and the body is is darkness. 
I bring this up because it's the basis for Louis C.K.'s work, <laughs> which is his comedy in general. This idea that like the body is this sort of dross and terrible thing, and this idea of arriving at uh, at an understanding with other people about sort of interacting with the sort of putridity of the body is, is a sort of truth that people feel on some level or to understand. Uh, I say a truth people feel to understand. That has a lot of stuff bound into it. It's not empirical. It's not observed, right? It's it's a belief, and it's something that's sort of a little bit shamanistic in the sense, and all of these things are a little bit shamanistic. How do you symbolically understand yourself? How do you arrive at a sense of engagement with your moral beliefs? And this is beyond ethics, right? This is how does it affect the way that you live? How does this affect the kind of performative theater of your moral life? Um, but this idea that there's goodness in people, but people are intrinsically bad uh, because in their physical bodies. Their souls are good and their bodies are bad. And I might be butchering Manichaeism a little bit, uh, but it's a, it has a little bit like it has to do with Gnosticism and other sorts of things. But um, that's not really a defense that you see being given for Louis C.K. in this situation. And I, and I think it's for good reason uh, because, because – and the reason it's not given is because it, uh, it, it's a heresy in the sense that well, it's a heresy it's a heresy from the point of view of christian orthodoxy right like it was a well-developed kind of spiritual uh iranian spiritual practice right or well, yeah uh, i guess but, originally but also, then but spread throughout a lot of of the east but it's also a heresy against the moral authority of ostracism uh taking the place of the action of the state to enforce certain sorts of behavior in the sense that okay so the state wants to the state should be punishing somebody for doing something bad the state doesn't punish them so everybody who has a particular moral belief gets together and says this person is bad and decides to like ostracize this person and find other sorts of means to make that material a material consequence we're going to pressure your sponsors to drop you we're going to pressure the people who pay you to stop paying you because nobody else is punishing you but if we were to weaken our resolve if we were to overly complicate our moral viewpoint if we were to acknowledge in the context of this unity that well yeah of course people are bad <laughs> you know like well of course the body is an ugly and terrible thing right well of course like like even if you were to walk into this with the perspective of like sexuality in general is intrinsically bad right like say that you were to come in and not saying that's what people are but say you were to come into this situation with the idea that sexuality is intrinsically bad it becomes harder to muster the moral unity to force the material consequence which is what you want to do. You want to arrive at a punishment and, and through m m uh, orthodoxy. And Manichaeism, in this sense, is a heresy that the, that the Christian church would want to put down, um, well, because of how it feels about the world, but also because of how it feels about how, what people should be like and, and how people should be punished by religious, religious authority um, as opposed to like – uh, you know, oh well, you've sinned. You should do penance to get forgiveness. But if you're a Manichaean, you—the reason you sin is because you're in a human body, right? Like, like you sin because you're a physical person, and so you should try to uh, become better by uh, becoming more of a of a sort of soul person as opposed to a body person. And that's different from saying you should go and make up for the bad things that you did by doing something good to make up for it, right? Um, and, and this is – you can say there's a lot of theological questions involved in this like uh, that, that are really moral questions and where the religion is standing as kind of a framework and an epistemological framework for talking about and understanding it. But this idea – but it's relevant, right? Like, um, like if we just consider that people are dirty and bad – 
which which is sort of like the um the sort of Martin Scorsese viewpoint on the world, right? Like and not not him personally, but like his films in that like Taxi Driver, right? Is that like the Taxi Driver guy is bad, and part of why he's bad is because the world is kind of bad, and uh it, by sort of depicting the world as bad and not shying away from looking at the badness of the world, we come to better understand this person who is also bad and not a good person. You know, like the people in The Departed are not like good people when they're betraying each other and getting people murdered uh yes you want to arrive at kind of an understanding of the truth but you're not like forgiving these people fully for the bad things that they do um and and that's more of a manichaean viewpoint i would say than than the sort of orthodox viewpoint that tries to crack that down because it depends upon a notion of like penance and a notion of punishment that isn't consistent with the idea that it is the state of nature for people to be to be bad uh, because they're in bodies. Although, of course, that intersects with Calvinism, but I'll put that aside for a second, because uh, that's, of course, very American, and I think very tied to... I mean, Calvinism isn't America. America is Calvinist. Um, but uh, it is how I would frame it, um, in the sense of how we view haves and have-nots, good and bad, prosperity and despair, is like very ingrained in our culture our ideas, Puritan ideas, as you've identified it, of like, you're a good person or you're a bad person, and there's nothing that you can do to affect it. Uh, it's just going to almost, yeah, almost, almost as though you had exactly one nature that was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. right. And like this, you know, a, a couple, a, a couple, when we were talking about when we did our God, we always do the fun ones, Pete, you and me, when we were talking <laughs> about uh, pain and aging a couple mm-hmm. of months ago, uh, I talked about um, something in psychology that's called, you know, ego ego splitting, right? Yeah. Um, I used it in the sense of, of uh, kind of separating the self in, into an observant, an observing and a um, experiencing uh, portion, which is kind of useful in, in, if you ever do psychotherapy, it's something that happens in, that people talk about in meditation a little bit, like that, you know, that there are, you can kind of like experience yourself in, in different ways uh, simultaneously, not just as one thing, but as, as a, as a thing. No, this is, this is by and large healthy. It can be a, so you probably, I guess you probably don't want to go through life like that all the time because it's just, uh, it's, it's pretty difficult to maintain, but it, in moments of like uh, personal growth and, and, and uh, or or uh, moments of crisis, uh, good crisis or bad crisis, this this sort of thing can happen. Um, I ended up reading up a little bit on on splitting in general, the kind of the the uh, psychological literature about it afterwards, because I was sort of curious about the conversation that we'd had, and I wanted to to go deeper into it. And um, you know, it's it, by and large, uh, I mean, it's not really my field, so everything I discovered was new to me. Um, but that that term is actually used not. Uh, not uh not in the positive way that i used it that is a very small kind of subset of the theory around splitting um the uh it's it's a, a splitting in general is a defense mechanism it's sometimes called black and white thinking and sort of the the ability the the tendency to divide things the self one's own self other people things in the world uh into either all good or all bad uh categories right and it's a way of it's it is a defense mechanism uh, it's associated and it functions in different ways with different um 
you know, with different particular kind of strains, different presentations of, of, uh, you know, mental illness, but the, the, um, you know, the, the main ones are either like, I am all good or all bad. This, this is in, in like, uh, in depression, right? Like, um, and, and you're <laughs> spoiler alert. You never come down on all good. You know, <laughs> sometimes without depression, well, no, that, not in depression in, uh, yeah. like omnipotent defenses that, yeah. you know, in like babies, you know, who sort of develop the idea that they are all powerful and can control their parents and can control the bringing of food and things like this. And like, this is is a, a sort of fantasy um, in senescence also like that, that people in, in times of real physical powerlessness in their life kind of develop this, this uh, um, develop the, these sorts of defenses. That's the all good one. But you know, the depressive position is like, it's, it's either all good or all bad. Right. Like, and you, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm terrible. I'm, I'm, uh, uh, you know, dominant or hideous uh, and in, uh, in different in more projective ones, it's like, you're either all good or all bad. It's the, the, you know, uh, good, good parent or bad parent, right. Good friend or bad friend, good Louis CK or bad Louis CK. Um, and that like these, these things are, are, they're obviously not adequate to, um, to describe the world. Uh, but you get into a lot of trouble when you, when you suggest that, that things are more complicated. I guess the thing, the thing that I want to, uh, the thing that that I want to bring up though is that like with psychology, given that it is, um, given that the the sort of, that seems to be the closest thing we have to a the, like the DSM seems to be uh, the closest thing we have to a codified religion that everybody <laughs> right can sort of agree on right even by that even by that light the sort of the black and white thinking is uh, you know is I'm, I'm not going to say it's bad but it's a it's a response to it's a response to trauma and it's a defense mechanism, right? Like we're, we're, we do these things that are maybe less than ideal discursively, uh, in order to protect ourselves from still worse things, um, that, uh, you know, that, that we're, uh, that we're really afraid of, you know, and that, that maybe we're, we're sort of rightly afraid of. And, and that's the, you know, that's the sort of, that's the sort of hard thing, right? Like the, you, you think of all of those, um, uh, you think of like horror stories you hear about religious, like super religious upbringings where like, uh, you know, parents are like holding their kids hand over the candle to like demonstrate the pains of hell and stuff like that. I mean, that's sort of a horror movie version, but it's an actual thing that, that, you know, has happened more than once in the world. And, and, uh, like, you know, the, 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 the pains of hell seem seem pretty awful right mm-hmm. and like it's better better to have some cucumbers you know this, <laughs> uh, this in case you have that was that's the third time like the the there one of the tenets of manichaeism was that there were sort of particles of the like the 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 collective or the like uh what is it called soul the like collective soul or something like that, <laughs> that shine were, come on and shine matt come on and shine <laughs> that were uh in like melons and cucumbers and grapes mm. and and kinds of i can't argue with that that. they're delicious yes what's what i you know when i'm biting into some cucumbers i feel like i am you know setting loose the world soul for sure uh yeah i really respond to very positively from what you said is this idea of it's not necessarily important to identify whether black or white thinking is good or bad 
but it might be useful to identify what it might be related to. Yeah. And so one of the things that I'm seeing a lot in friends having conversations with friends about Louis C.K. is some people are very comfortable with identifying what Louis C.K. did as like all good or all bad. Well, not, nobody's saying it's all good. <laughs> but like as you said, nobody's coming down on all good in this situation. But a lot of people – some people are comfortable with saying what he did is all bad. And then other people are like, well, I'm not sure because there might be like I want to have some sort of predisposition towards in general people not being totally disposable. There might be a correlation, hint, hint, between the people who think that Louis C.K. is is all bad in all respects and all things and people for whom this is a self-protective issue of their own trauma and problems, like their own suffering, things that people have hurt. People have hurt them, and they have had to get strong and had to get tough and had to protect themselves. And part of this is the black and white thinking around people who might be threats. Uh, or are threats are clearly threats, <laughs> like very, very obviously threats, and and so there's a gap here that's not really easy to bridge. Except, I mean, this is part of why it's like don't just assume when people say like you should listen and not just sort of assume that you're the only one who has anything to say. Part of that is that there are going to be certain sorts of gaps with people that you're not really going to be able to bridge, and one of them might be if somebody has a really personal reason to feel, say, like threatened by dudes who go around shoving them against walls and taking their dicks out, right? Like <laughs> to, to not be too blue about it, but like that's the kind of thing that for some people is a clear and present danger that they deal with on a regular basis, right? And for other people, it is not. And so you should not expect those two groups of people to have the same sort of notion of good and bad related to it uh, psychologically, because the people for whom it is a clear and present danger, you should expect them to have more black and white thinking around it. How they deal with it in terms of psychological health is their own business and not your business. Your business is your own psychological health, not the psychological health of random other people. The other thing it, it says is that like, it shows how tricky it is to try to negotiate these sorts of consequences through the moral lens because if the thing that is enforcing the consequences is moral unity and you want to kind of get into the nuances, you then kind of look to undermine the unity, which then threatens to undermine the whole effort to make any sort of judgment or enforce any sorts of consequences, which might not be a desirable outcome for you. And let me right? – so, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Sorry, cash out this thought. Oh, no, I was just saying that, like, so if you disagree with somebody who is thinking black and white about something, you might have to recognize that if you voice that disagreement, you might in practical terms also be getting in the way of, like, the mechanism of punishment for this person that you might also want to see punished. And that creates a problem for you in, like, well, how do I deal with my private moral life and how do I deal with the effects of what I say on other people? And that is not an easy problem, but as we're sort of fleshing out, it's a complicated problem for which there are a variety of different ways of, like – Thinking what you think to yourself and like not voicing it to everybody that you run across or like not enforcing that everybody think like you. But at the same time, like trying to deal with the fact that other people might have ways that they're using their beliefs to enforce things on people. I don't know. It's it's there's no easy solution, but that's the cash out on that. Yeah. And I want to I want to like I want to complicate. Yeah. And and I I, uh, I'm sorry for interrupting, but I I wanted to kind of complicate the the picture even kind of further that you're drawing, which is that like, um. You know, it's not you can't sort of divide the world into like trauma survivors with black and white thinking and, uh, you know, those of us who are reasonable. Right. Like, let me stay reasonable. Yeah, exactly. Let me stay. you know, uh, right. Who who don't who don't have uh, analogous experiences and and who don't sort of need to respond to those specific threats um, out of quite so urgent a sense of self-preservation, let's say. Right. Because like because the the no, let me. 
let me, uh, I mean, let me stand up for the unwoke a little bit, right? Like a lot of people who, who respond badly uh, when they say we should take these things seriously, right, are trying to preserve some sort of sense of identity that is th- that they perceive is being un- is, as under threat, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, so you have sort of two, um, you know, you have sort of in- incompatible wounds sometimes in the most, in the most, uh, uh, kind of toxic versions of the this um fight that i've that i've seen go down between the you know um between sort of competing uh you know competing like uh defense mechanisms you know um yeah so so like there's one orthodoxy which is like the main threat that we're dealing with the main evil here is the people who are doing the bad things and getting away with them. And then the other orthodoxy might be the main evil we're dealing with here are people going around wielding moral authority and forcing their ideas on people. Like, I might have a bad memory of somebody doing something to me that makes me very loath to participate in this kind of act, like somebody exerting authority on me in a way that hurt me, uh, that I'm defending my own reality against. And and at the same time, the other person is saying, well, I'm defending against this thing, and I'm defending against this thing. And, and when these things clash, I, well, I guess one, one of the reasons I bring up the heresies is that like there's a, people come to blows on it because there's not necessarily an easy resolution. And I'm not justifying that people come to blows on it, but you can start to understand how these things metastasize into physical conflict because the beliefs are held so strongly and they do they do matter. Like your belief about forgiveness does affect how you relate to other people. Your belief about safety and who needs to be protected does relate to other people. And especially if you're in a situation where there isn't an authority figure you kind of all are invested in who is able to take care of business – like uh, if as long if, as you're in this place where the authority is kind of broken down, it's really not easy to bridge these gaps. Like it's really it can be really hard, uh, and I think maybe it's just helpful to acknowledge that these can be hard gaps to bridge in the context of even the necessary things that need to happen with regards to people doing bad things. Yeah, and it, um, you know it's sort of like I think there's like a a kind of. Well, I think there's a kind of accommodation that sometimes that sometimes sort of needs to be that sometimes sort of needs to be reached, right? Like mm-hmm. because we're not talking about very very often in the in the the actual conversations, not in, not in the kind of the the larger stories where a lot of these things need to be like uh, uh, referred to the criminal justice system, you know, because the state needs to step up and do its do its job. Um, a lot of these things are going to be. Uh, you know the the sort of harms are going to be remediated privately with you know money changing hands as though that really solves the underlying cause of anything um but like when when we're sort of talking to each other like the 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 main consequence right the main stakes is like whether we can uh, arrive at some sort of com- uh, accommodation that allows us to still call each other community right mm-hmm. and and in that connection you know, not when you're advocating for political change, not when you are, you know, um, doing something with with consequences outside of the 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 conversation or outside of the kind of the the ability to uh, to live together. It, it has become, you know, sort of my goal to to I don't know. They say listen, but to to sort of. Um, it's not just that it's it's sort of try to understand 
uh, someone else's experience that might be leading them to say the things that that they're Mm -hmm. saying and like before i sort of and and to sort of to understand it in a prejudgmental way, not a non-judgmental way, because eventually I actually do want to make decisions about what I think is good or bad, who I want in my life or not. Um, but before that, right, like before that, there can be a kind of suspension for a, you know, for a short time of, of you know, coming of like holding the Council of Chalcedon, you know, like uh, there, there can be, you can go on hiatus, you know, point of point of personal privilege mr speaker um bishop speaker your excellency i should say <laughs> um that uh you know there can be a sort of a, a small period where where you try to reconstruct you know what what another what another person who of course is is themselves neither all good nor all bad uh wants has gone through and what leads them to Say say the the things that they're saying, even if they seem monkey balls insane to you, uh, mm. a lot of the time, you know. Yeah. So so to take this in a slightly different direction, can we talk? I want to talk about celebrities and how celebrities because celebrity complicates this a lot. Yeah, sure. It does. I want to talk about the the big heresy in the room we haven't talked about, which is Arianism. Huh. <laughs> which is Arianism, also heavy-duty in North Africa at times. Um, Arianism is the variant of Christianity that was largely adopted by barbarians, quote-unquote, outside of the Roman Empire. Uh, so within the Roman Empire, it was largely stamped out, but became very popular outside of the Roman Empire. Uh, and it's it's a particularly important heresy. And the way that – the heresy of Arianism and the question of Arianism is what when you talk about you know, again, God and Jesus, right? And the Holy Spirit comes in later. But when you talk about God and Jesus, and you talk about a father and a son, and, you're, and what you're talking about, to put it in the context that's kind of transferable to different sorts of ways of talking about people, when you're talking about, like, the divine, the, like, supremely good, and, and in the context of celebrities, the things that people worship, <laughs> right? Like, so let's let's acknowledge that part of the, the tension and pain associated with these kind of uh, – moral judgments against celebrities is that these celebrities are not really people in in how they are being regarded like when people people especially it's especially apparent with louis ck where the context of his work and and his comedy so clearly informs what people are immediately willing to assume about who he is as a person when you have to deal with him in the workplace uh so like the way that he's sort of honest and sad and it's like it makes you want to think well of course he probably did this because of sadness and because of the same kind of feelings that i see in his work and there's this almost apotheosis where this celebrity is like an idea, and and you come to expect, well, what would this celebrity do in this situation based on how I've kind of idealized them? So with Arianism, the idea is uh, that Jesus was created at some point, that like there's a father and the son, and the son is born, uh, and and like Jesus, the word right is a word is spoken, and sort of the Gospel of of John is talks about. The logos, the word, as this sort of sacred uh, product of God, but then there's this disagreement of like, well, are we dealing with a situation where we have one, un, you know, unoriginated, un, un like one sort of like never created divine presence, and then one divine presence that at some point was created, and that, or are we dealing with a situation where we have these two combined, these two divine presences that are roughly contemporaneous in their sort of primacy in time with one another? And the way that I think that this is interesting is like um, 
you can see why somebody acting in the framework of a moral orthodoxy would reject the notion that any sort of divinity, uh, any sort of object of worship, ex- that there was a time that they didn't exist, a time that they weren't the way that they are. Like, like, uh, like there's an urge to make everything eternal. Uh, you know, like if they were ever like this, they were always like this. Uh, I, one, one, one sort of weird. Uh, it's not really a koan, but it's sort of a lean in the direction of a koan. I want a word for this where it's like something. I want a word for this where it's a, it's a lie. It's something that's obviously false, but there feels like there's a truth in it. And, and here, here it is. Um, is that for me, Matt? It is really hard for me to conceive of a world in which Billy Idol didn't exist. <laughs> Right, and if I use Billy Idol like on purpose to, to sort of talk about the religious conflation that goes on, I mean the degree to which any of this is wise is like not a lot, right? Like you don't really Billy Idol is not an object of worship. However, when he appears in the Wedding Singer, it's like as a as a Deus Ex Machina, quite liter- quite literally in the in the uh, not literally, but in the sense of the term in the theater, as in like he is literally a Deus Ex Machina because he is like put on the camera. <laughs> To, to like, and he shows up in the scene to fix the relationship between Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore's characters in that movie. But the idea of like, I've heard Billy Idol's songs for as long as I've lived. Billy Idol is this sort of presence that seems to be kind of made into an icon and not really associated with a person. White Wedding is something that's almost too pure for any one person to have like come up with. Uh, I, I don't like sit down with like a friend working on a project and being like, oh yeah, we should write White Wedding. It reminds me of, uh, was it Trey Anastasi, the, the fish guy? I always get his last name wrong. When I, and I've talked about this in the podcast a bunch of times over the years, this great interview he did where he said the one thing he wished he'd done is write a number one song, try to go home and write Mambo number five. You can't. It's impossible. Right. Uh, and so these sort of transcendent pop culture personages and moments, I feel like they do get kind of, uh, they become like saints or gods, and that they become objects of worship, and they become they become treated more like divinities than people. And that's part of why you might think like, wow, you know, I don't feel comfortable uh, not admiring the work of Louis C.K., because to me, it has some sort of transcendent artistic meaning or cultural meaning, or it doesn't sound like a person that I could just hate. It's an idea, you know? And um, and in Arianism, there's this idea that, like, well, Jesus was created, and at a certain point before that, he wasn't created, which has implications for, like, well, what about things that happened before Christianity existed? Like, does that mean that other things might happen in the future that might kind of change the way that the world works? How can we be certain that what we believe now is always going to be right? How are we going to be certain that what we've believed in the past has always been the case if the sort of divine landscape can change? Whereas the Orthodox position and it's sort of like there's a continuum where on one side is the monophysitist physicist the mono the empress theodora so the empress theodora is on one side and the arians are on the other side and as you said the the position of the trinity is what ends up in the middle the position of like jesus is both divine and a person as opposed to on the and the arians aren't saying that he's a person but they're saying that he's not god and then the monophysitist yeah that there was a time right right exactly there was a time when the sun was not uh, yeah, and that be well, sorry. Yeah, go sorry. Go on. Yeah, and the monophysicists are saying, no, no, no. He's he's just as much God as God in in every respect, and and, and he's not human, <laughs> right? He's not like a person in the sense that you would describe a person as being bad. Um, and I just I've noticed in this sense of like one of the things that has to happen in these discourses is like you find out that some celebrity has done something that might have been many many years ago. With the case of Louis C.K., it wasn't many years ago. It was much more recently. But in the case of say. 
like Kevin Spacey, the main primordial event that is sort of dis- spurred on the discussion of Kevin Spacey is something that happened like 30 years ago. And partially because it's only being revealed now and has happened 30 years ago, and partially because the orthodoxy demands it in order to be able to exercise authority, there is the assumption that has that you have people have to bring to the table the notion that the person was always like this and will always be like this. And 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 at least in in the scope of the current exercise of authority against them, like you're like, well, what if they changed? <laughs> what if they're sorry? What if, what if they try to do some sort of penance? Uh, I mean, in in the sense of like, are you believing in a landscape for the for this is not just a person. This is also an object of worship, and we're talking about whether people can continue to worship this person if they've proven to be bad. And we kind of believe that objects of worship need to be eternal. And so thus, Bill Cosby is all a good guy or all a bad guy all the time, forever. From when he was like, – like when Bill Cosby was a child, he was bad. <laughs> right? When Bill Cosby was an adult, he was bad. When Bill Cosby was an old man, he well, was when, bad. When I was a child, I thought as Bill Cosby, I reasoned as Bill Cosby, I saw yeah. as Bill Cosby. When I became a man, I put away Bill Cosby things. And, and I'm not saying this in order to – I'm not. I'm really, really not trying to do apologia for these people and the bad things that they do. I'm just trying to provide some sort of framework and way of thinking for why – people would arrive at these kinds of disagreements like why does it why does anybody really care whether louis ck can get forgiveness right like in his life i mean the one of the protestant views would be it's his business you know it's not our business he has his own conscience the catholic view would be he should perform some sort of penance he should he's confessed we need to know that he's sincerely sorry but he should do some sort of penance like um are you familiar with the massacre of Thessalonica, Matt? Uh, no, I'm not, but oh. I'm about to be. It's so terrible. It's absolutely terrible. I mean, it's not the most terrible thing in the world, but it's pretty bad. And uh, it's it's that um, it has to do with the Emperor Theodosius, who is generally thought of highly, especially by Christians, is late in the Roman Empire. And the city of Thessalonica, there was a chariot racing hero. The, the Ronaldo of Thessalonica, big chariot racing star, although that's not fair to Ronaldo, who did not do the things that this guy did. Uh, but this guy tried to rape a, a cupbearer, a servant. And partially because it was an attempted rape and partially because the troops who were in the city pacifying the city were Gothic and the culture of the city was Greek and the Gothics were homophobes <laughs> in, 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 in the modern sense. It's a word that didn't exist at the time. It's not an accurate description, particularly for what it is, but it's a shorthand that the, the, the cultures from outside of Greece are much less friendly to male-male sexual relations than the, 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 this particular culture was. The, the soldiers, the local authorities lock the guy up and prevent him from participating in like the big race of the season. And as a result, People from the town go to the heads of the police, drag them out in the street and murder them <laughs> in, in, in protest to this miscarriage of justice by locking up this guy for what they see as like living their own culture that they're comfortable with. Now, again, really bad that he tried to rape this guy. But the question is, how much are you looking down on people who are engaging in same-sex sexual activity, right? And, that, and that's informing what's happening. Um, the way that the Emperor Theodosius deals with this is that – and again, this, they, they, they took it upon themselves because they felt like the people in charge weren't doing their job the way that they needed to do. And, and of course, I, we shouldn't necessarily defend them, but what comes next is terrible. Uh, I've heard it described as everybody goes to the chariot race. Emperor Theodosius has sent orders, lock all the doors, send men into the crowd with swords, butcher thousands of people. 
I've heard it also said that go to the town men with swords and indiscriminately butcher thousands of people. Men, women, children doesn't have anything to do with whether they had anything to do with the riots. This is a punitive action. We're going to butcher these people. Uh, for some reason, the idea that he did it in the stadium feels especially horrific, uh, which is interesting to consider what that means about sa- sacred spaces and sort of weird translations of uh, and like misunderstandings of where we should be putting our faith, where should we be putting our sacred spaces. But considering the kind of truth of it, the idea of massacring these people in a um, in a stadium is especially bad. The thing that makes it particularly notable, there were bigger massacres. There were even bigger massacres of chariot racing fans. The Emperor Justinian engaged in one that was ten times as big. Uh, but because <laughs> chariot racing fans could not be controlled, was that um, it was St. Ambrose insisted that the Emperor perform a penance, and he would not let him in churches. And this was like really early on in the history of the Emperor being Christian. I mean, it's like the first hundred years or so. And it's like, you can't come in the church anymore, Emperor which is a big deal because the emperor historically is a god. <laughs> and so like the emperor was the unity of the religious authority and the material authority. When the Christian bishops were starting to presume political power, they turned to the emperor as sort of investing their political their, – their moral authority with political power. But they arrived at this sort of separation where even the emperor wasn't above – the the moral authority of the church and and the emperor theodosius had to perform this like extended penance i won't go into the details of it but it lasted for a long time more than a year and and um and it becomes a sort of foundation of the idea that moral like in this case ecclesiastical authorities but i might even say moral authorities have a have a vested appropriate power to hold material authorities morally accountable for things that they do while they're doing their jobs right um, and and in this case, the idea of penance, it's different from the idea of like, oh, the Emperor Theodosius is terrible and was always terrible, which is one way to look at it. And especially through a contemporary lens, the Emperor Theodosius is a monster. You know, well, first of all, he had slavery in his empire, and that's terrible. But also, he murdered all these innocent people. He is a monster. He was always a monster. This is like, and like the Aryan may might be like the sort of pseudo Aryan way is like, well, he became a monster. <laughs> Like, the the status of divinity changes. Like, you might still think the emperor is this awesome – now, again, this would be heresy because you're thinking of the emperor as a a holy figure. But it's like if you think about celebrity as divinity and the emperor as a celebrity, it's like, well, this state of divinity changes. At one point, maybe the emperor was great. Now the emperor is a monster. Um, But but the idea of, like, whether you think that people achieve forgiveness in their own consciences – whether it's sort of a mysterious and we don't know if they ever achieve forgiveness, whether they can perform a penance and be given forgiveness, these are all ideas that interact with different sorts of modes of what's orthodox or what's the sort of moral hegemonic idea of how we adjudicate these problems. And one of the things that is interesting about the current, uh, as we've called it, crisis of authority in pop culture figures committing horrible moral crimes is, um, is and, that uh, also, we- also temporal crimes. And temporal crimes too, moral, temporal, all sorts of things, is that we don't really know what sort of mode we're in. Well, right. And that's, that's the thing. Like the th- I, a lot of the time – so the, the idea of um, – Pete, you've written an agenda for a meeting uh, once or twice in your life, I, I imagine, having worked in, in all of yeah. these uh, huge organizations whose performance is tied to the, to the macroeconomic situation. Um, yeah. I imagine that, that you've experienced uh, agenda, agenda filling out. And that, like, uh, one of the things on um, 
on uh, the sort of stock agenda form, you know, that, that you get is like desired outcome, right? Like, why would you put anything on an agenda if there's not an, a, a desired outcome, whether it's decision or information sharing or, you know, a change in, in some way, like there's a desired outcome. I, I guess I was reading, I, I, for whatever reason, I associate this term with the military, but uh, desired end state, right? I was reading, I guess, some sort of uh, uh, military history, maybe, or something like that, or or a, a memoir or something, and people were talking about like there. If you have a campaign or if you have a mission, there's a desired end state, right? Like what you want the world to look like after your mission. And a lot of the and it just in terms of the and and I mean like liberal discourse, sure, whatever it is, the like the Atlantic verse or like uh, just my my. Um, my friends yelling at each other on Facebook and things like this a lot uh, about any number of issues, not just this, like a lot of the, the time I, I just, I am so taken with the question of like, what is your desired end state here? Now, a lot of the time people like have a strong feeling and need to like, uh, need to perform it or need to kind of get it out, you know, somehow need to, to let it out. And that's like a, a lot of the times, a lot of the time, like the proper thing to do as a mature adult is to like bear witness and then go on with your day, you know? And then, but, but, yeah, you know, a little bit like what you you sort of wonder like what what is the desired end state like what what because surely it would be better to rehabilitate Bill Cosby somehow right like uh, you know maybe not maybe that's maybe maybe what we need to do is to 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 cast him into the outer darkness of Gehenna where the worm sleepeth not and the fire is never quenched you know maybe maybe that's the right thing to do. Um, I mean, I, I guess when you're talking about some, someone tried to come at me, you know, with this like, well, remember, he did a lot of great things for the community uh, sort of thing. And like, I, I was like, yeah, it's the wrong time to make that point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're, you're not incorrect, but this is the wrong time to be uh, to be making to be making this this point. Um And it was, uh, you know, so so like the the, the I'm I'm struck I'm struck again and again by how often things that that you want to kind of give a black and white kind of moral valence to, you want a kind of orthodoxy versus heresy, right versus wrong, black versus white things. And again, I'm not talking about, you know, I'm not talking about people committing crimes, which should be, you know, punished by a, a... you know, state that should take these crimes seriously and actually do something about them. But I'm talking about when we talk about them, when we talk with each other about them, um, and we kind of negotiate our positions among each other. We kind of negotiate our sense of community. We negotiate a really, I don't mean negotiate transactionally. We, we, what's a better word, Pete? We, we sort of, um, work through together yeah. our, our kind of our feelings and our, our ability to kind of live together in community. How much of these things come down never to kind of the issues of what's right and wrong per se, um, but to to questions of uh, scale, sensitivity, tone, and emphasis, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Or uh, maybe instead of scale, I'll say perspective. Perspective, sensitivity, tone, and emphasis. And that, like, that's, that's not you know, super, um, 
that's not a slogan. You know what I mean? You can't like disrupt a, a humanities lecture at Reed College chanting perspective, sensitivity, tone, and emphasis. Well, yeah, because you're talking about the difference between ideas that are circulated in the presence of a separate authority figure versus ideas that are circulated as the authority figure. Right. And if you're using the ideas as the basis for the worldly and material authority, you have to pick words that do that. Yeah. And that's what you're saying, the end state. It's, it's like, what are you trying to accomplish? Right. And, and it varies, right? But it, there's, I think it's fair to, to consider that, like, I mean, it, this is not the only time that this is going to happen. And it is not also that there is going to be a purge and then everything is going to be great. <laughs> like, that's not how it's going to work either. There might be like a – hopefully there's some sort of positive change that comes out of this in the sense of a sea change towards the way that women are treated in their workplaces. But at the same time, like, there are going to be other times in which people are going to do bad things and we're going to need to talk about it. And and so what I'm, I'm saying, again, is like not to necessarily back off on it, but like – understand the need to get to the outcome that you need to get to and also understand that how you personally feel about it morally might not necessarily jive with like the kind of conversation that's happening at the moment right the, the right time or the wrong time it's interesting because it calls for a certain inauthenticity <laughs> like it basically is like i have to kind of not say what i really believe uh in the sense of like i believe that all, that I'm now better than other people, or I believe that people really what it's look, I'm trying to get down to the heart of the matter. <laughs> and my thoughts seem to shatter, but I think it's about forgiveness. <laughs> forgiveness, even if you don't love me anymore, right? Is, is what I'm talking about here. And that's really what connects it all to Christianity. Because at least in terms of William Blake, William Blake's cosmology, the main innovation of Christianity is the forgiveness of sins. That is the main thing that Christianity does. And even if you're not Christian, I think that you can see that there are certain sorts of moral benefits to approaching the idea of crimes and sins with the notion of forgiveness. Now, that's the the problem though is like forgiveness versus punishment. If if you forgive, do you always turn the other cheek in which case you're leaving people who you might be responsible for protecting without protection. Uh so like how do we negotiate and adjudicate the idea of like maybe the eye for an eye leaving the whole world blind? We sh- maybe we shouldn't be pursuing this. Maybe we should be like Jakar and not be pursuing vengeance with the fact that like we should also be like Jakar and understand that the Shadow War is a real thing. It needs to happen uh, is another kind of like Babylon 5 solution to a Harvey Weinstein problem. But um, it's uh, – yeah, it's tough. It's really tough, and I think that's part of why I have to dig so deep to such strange things to try to think about how to approach it. Um, I mean, I guess guess one of the big things that comes out of it, you mentioned way early that we were going to mention monasticism, but just to say it like really, really fast, is like in these sorts of places where you have a moral authority that's kind of separate from worldly authority and better than worldly authority is expected to be, and this idea that we should all be better, but that people kind of vary from it and are not so great sometimes – there is this idea that we should have people who are kind of separate from society, who whether they're like the hermits who sit on poles in Egypt in the initial in the early days, and like the wise men who and I guess when, I, I presume wise men and women who would like go out into the wilderness, and people would go to them in the wilderness and be like, "You live in this world that's separated from like worldly concerns. You know, what do you think is right or wrong? What do you think is good or bad?" 
and versus the all also the idea of the community of monks that like live in the chateau somewhere where they brew beer and copy manuscripts and it's like well you've been removed from the cares of the world like what do you think is good or bad there there's an interesting idea that in the midst of all this not everybody there is laity <laughs> there is a laity in to wokeness <laughs> like not everybody who is is like uh in the world of the woke there are ordained people who are seen as being separate from the temporal concerns of everyday life who we go to for a purity of 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 perspective and and it's interesting to try to acknowledge what that means do you really think that everybody should be chased and living in the desert now again i'm not again i don't want this to be a false equivalency about mistreating people in the workplace i'm more talking about like having a really strong belief in say like the future overthrow and revolution of the entire society versus like i want to go to my job and i don't want to worry about the overthrow of the entire society in a general sense right like there's people who have this sort of professed purity of purpose, purity of belief, uh, which, again, is not framed as religious a lot of the time, but still takes on this quality that seems analogous to the religious well, because of the way in which, like, moral authority and temporal authority are separate. Right. Well, you're, you're talking about two things, right? There's monasticism, and then there's, yeah. a, a, like, ascetic monasticism, ascetic, yeah. monas- ascetic monasticism. Yeah. Ascetic is like acetic acid, like vinegar. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Which is delicious on salad. Both of these are delicious on salad. Well, actually, more more than the other. If you're ascetic, you don't even eat the salad. You eat salad without dressing if you're ascetic. If you're right. ascetic, you have delicious vinaigrette. <laughs> but. <laughs> um, but ascetic monasticism, like the, the, you know, the idea that you are going to... Uh, that you're going to sort of mortify the flesh, right? Mm-hmm. In addition to, you know, in addition to kind of seclusion. Cause like the idea of monasticism is as seclusion or as, um, you know, extreme practice. Um, the, the, uh, you know, uh, the, the kind of Christian tradition of, of ascetic monasticism seems to have arisen at a time when Christians weren't persecuted anymore. And so a lot of that persecution energy, you know, was, was like internalized or sublimated in, in yeah. some way and was like all of a sudden, you know, no, we're going to create, uh, we're going to create the hardships for ourselves. And the thing, the thing this about. It's also the fight club question of like, our generation has no great war and no great depression. And it's like, oh, no, terrible things haven't happened to us. We need to cause terrible things to happen to ourselves to achieve the moral rectitude of previous generations. Jeez, Pete, some people just like CrossFit. <laughs> but uh, but um, my, my point is that it involves, d- depending on the level of asceticism in your monasticism, uh, oh, no, you got your asceticism chocolate and my monasticism peanut butter, um, is – is it involves a sacrifice, right? Yeah. And the the problem the problem with the sort of self proclaimed woke monks, you know, right? Like uh, in the, in the world of the woke, the sleeping man is king. And the right, like the the, the problem the problem with kind of self self proclaimed wokeness monasticism is that it 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 is a have your cake and eat it too um sort of philosophy yeah. because it doesn't involve a it doesn't involve a withdrawal. Uh, withdrawal from the world right it doesn't involve the kind of sacrifice that lends that seems to lend legitimacy and credibility to one's moral moral positions right i mean it does sometimes but not all the time yeah and there there is definitely something to be it is interesting to think of 
people who are political on both the right and the left who achieve a sense of hardcore legitimacy from their ability to from their like willingness to say things which like regular people can't afford to say or think such as like the whole world is going to end and like we should all you know like, this is the whole throw down your possessions and come follow me thing like we need to abandon the world as it is and consider the world as it ought to be um and those of us who live in the world as it is find that to be pretty pretty tough but among those sets of people even there are those who have demonstrated some measure of personal sacrifice versus those who have not. And it is interesting to consider the different feeling of legitimacy that's associated with those people, whether it's relevant or not in the sort of um, practical sense of things. Like, you, just because somebody has made sacrifices doesn't necessarily mean that they're smarter. But in our culture, that's kind of how it's worked out because of the way it's been handed down to us and also because of, like, the separation of temporal and moral into sort of two different uh, realms like temporal authority and moral authority are separated out. You have a church and you have a state, uh, or state and a church, and so like you, that 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 sort of raises and begs the question of where are the monks? Um, which is because it's like protesting is has a sacrifice, right? Like go out there and you get busted up and you get arrested and you get hassled. Sometimes you get violence committed against you. Like these are you're you know, you're trying to you're you're trying to achieve the esteem of the martyr. Um, and the moral authority that comes with it, which is sort of what all monks are trying to do to an extent in that sense, right? Like the asceticism or ascetic acid, I guess. But anyway, I'm, yeah, I, I, I totally get what you're saying, which is like um, if you value the purity of wisdom of somebody who is withdrawn from the world – uh, make sure that they've actually withdrawn from the world and don't just talk as if they withdrawn from the world. And this is the criticism of like, oh, yeah, you're all protesting capitalism from your iPhones, which is tiresome. Um, but that's kind of where it's coming from, right, is that like, yo, you're a monk, but you like live in the middle of town in a nice house and you have a regular job. So like you're not really a monk, <laughs> right? Like this is this is Steve Jobs, the holy man, where he's like he's ascetic in the sense that he only wears turtlenecks and he's seen as like a, a wise and divine being who's separate from the world because he lives in the realm of design and innovation, not in the regular world like the rest of us. And he's made the great sacrifice of not having setting behind him or other lights than the one that's on him on the stage when he walks out. Um, and he's also done done us the favor of dying and becoming larger than life so that he can be referred to as, as a sort of being of reverence. Not that that was any less when he was alive than now that he has passed. Um, I'm just saying we're all we're 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 living in late antiquity, man. It's uh, the dark ages have already begun, right? Uh, to the extent that they exist, but you know the dark ages are pretty awesome because you get to have dragons and wizards, right? Like that stuff gets to happen, right? You get to have Minas Tirith and all that stuff. I've gotten so far away from the topic. When we're talking about like the 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 sort of divinity associated with making a telephone versus like the divinity associated with like people not wanting to believe that you assaulted your employees <laughs> like it's like we i don't with so much idolatry you know so much idolatry if people just stuck with that first commandment it would be so much is it the first one the second one i always think the first one is the one against idolatry but there's also the graven images one right oh yeah i mean there, well there yeah. are different versions of the decalogue yeah. in different places and they all yeah. they all are are uh a little a little different but i i'm going to uh i'm going to put my faith in this golden calf uh this golden <laughs> calf brought our people brought our people the overthinkers out of the land of egypt and uh you know uh the, i'm i'm dancing next to a painted harlot and uh we're having a fun golden calf party here uh in the in the shadow of mount sinai and uh i'm i'm putting my money on the on the golden calf you know that's uh that's well i'm uh, putting mine on the fearless girl that i'm putting down in front of the golden and calf. 
<laughs> this has been the Overthinking It podcast. Thank you, Pete, for uh, podcasting with me. And thank you, uh, listeners, very much for listening to us. If you liked the question of the week, you can get a question of the week most weeks by uh, joining, becoming a member of Overthinking It at overthinkingit.com slash join. In any case, we'll be back with more podcasts next week. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. Ah. Uh...